Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This podcast may contain, but is not limited to, strong language, sexual content, violence, and death. This podcast may not be suitable for listeners under 18. Hi, I'm Christina. And I'm Crystal. Welcome Welcome to to Crime Crime Night. Night. Tonight's episode is about the Ashland tragedies in 1881. This episode takes place in Kentucky, where the tornadoes actually just hit recently in the devastation that's going on down there. So our hearts just go out to everyone who's been affected by the tornado disaster. We've seen the pictures, and it's just pure devastation. And we will be putting up some charities in the description box for anyone who does want to you know, give a donation to you know those in Kentucky that are needing help right now to help them rebuild their homes and their lives again yeah and for you know getting them a place to stay while they're displaced you know right before the holidays Food too and clothing and, and everything yeah, they what, need the everything they need you know immediately mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. John and Martha Gibbons were married in the 1850s, and by 1881, the Gibbons had three children at home with them. There are reports that John and Martha have had children from previous marriages, and there's also rumors that John's first wife was possibly murdered. So in 1881, John was reported to be in his late 60s, and Martha being in her late 40s, so they had a quite large age gap between the two of them. So the Gibbons family lived in the Gamely area of Ashland, Kentucky. Ashland is located in Boyd County in the northeastern part of Kentucky. A population of approximately 3,000 in 1881, but today the population would be closer to about 20,000. So Ashland was a small growing community known for farming and the town was also rich in coal and iron ore at that time. Ashland was normally a safe place with not much crime but in the late 1800s it was a rough time for the country as a whole as they were still dealing with the effects from the end of the civil war in 1865. So many families still had not recovered economically and they had less money than they did in pre-war times. The Gibbons were relatively poor and would only have money sometimes. So the family was also well known in the community and John was a carpenter by trade and he struggled with the family's financial situation. When he had money, John was known to be happy, and he would boast about how great his family was. However, when his family had nothing, John would slip into a depression, and he would drink heavily. John's change in his attitude left a strain on the family, and he was reportedly abusive towards Martha and the children, leaving them afraid of him. And John would leave the family for months at a time, and he would just kind of come and go at his leisure. So that's got to be very stressful. Yes, yeah, for especially for the mother and, I mean, for all of them, for the whole family having to deal with him. They never know, you know, whether he's going to be in a good mood or bad mood or if he's going to be there or be gone. Yeah, and who knows how what mood he's going to be in when he suddenly comes back home. Yeah, it's got to be tough mentally on them. Yes, yeah, rough for them. 
So Robbie Gibbons was the oldest of the children that had been living in the home. He was 17 in 1881. And he actually had suffered a tragedy when he was around seven years old when he fell onto a train track and his leg was actually run over by an empty car that was being pushed along the tracks by hand. Um, And even, you know, pushing by hand, it wouldn't have as much force as like today with an engine on a train, but still the momentum, they wouldn't have been able to you know, stop it from running him over. And this accident actually resulted in his leg having to be severed below the knee. So imagine back then they didn't have the medicines they have now. They Mm -hmm. didn't have the anesthetics, the pain pills and stuff that we have now. So for him to even survive that was. Yeah. And it was, you know, didn't have like antibiotics and, you know, the, getting an infection would have been so easy Mm. back then and it was a time where if you got an infection it was just kind of like you hope you made it through you never know Mm -hmm. so like you could have died and he was only seven so imagine having to be that young and going through you know not only that pain but you know that's a complete life change now you have to learn to live with it in a young age you're tired you Mm -hmm. know like a half your leg missing so that would be i'm sure very rough especially at seven when you're trying you want to run around and play yeah and- yeah and I'm, I'm sure they played you know i don't know what games they played back then but probably stuff like tag and you know mm-hmm. maybe baseball or i don't know exactly what they had game wise back then but you know kids want to be running around playing climbing mm-hmm. trees mm-hmm. you know swimming in the creeks and all that you know. He wouldn't have been able to, I'm sure. Yeah. And he, I'm sure, had to, you know, adjust his entire life and figure out how to live. The family did, too, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. But uh, despite his injury, Robbie actually would be the primary breadwinner for the family when, you know, in times when John was gone, he would, you know, step up and have to take care of the family while the dad was just off doing whatever it was he was doing. At such a young age to well i guess have... back in the 1800s at 17 it would be common for some people that age to work especially if you yeah but to raise your brothers and sisters and take care of your mom be the primary well i'm sure the mom was raising family. them he would just bring <laughs> home the money yeah i guess also at home was fanny gibbons she was 14 and very popular and outgoing she had a lot of friends Uh, she was also known to look older than she was and as such had many admirers who were probably way too old for her yeah well they probably didn't realize her age either so yes and the youngest child was sterling gibbons who was 11 and they actually were reported to have a another child who had actually passed away at the age of five um there's no record how he died but his name would have been harry and i'm sure he probably passed away from type of disease or something it was you know without they didn't have it wasn't modern medicine so it was more common for family members or young children especially to Mm -hmm. not make it till their 18th birthday that's why they had such large families back then they Mm -hmm. had so many kids because a lot of them wouldn't make it Mm mm-hmm yeah. 
I mean, it's sad to think, and yeah. but and if something happened, like an accident back then, it's not like an accident today where you could just go to the hospital and they'll fix you up. Mm-hmm. Back then, it they didn't really have a lot of the technology we have, and they would. It's possible they died of infections, like quite commonly. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of trial and error back then too. Yeah. Especially, you know, learning new medical techniques. Yeah, and, and they didn't have internet mm-hmm. that you can research stuff and figure out what other doctors have tried and done. Mm-hmm. So, total different time frames. So, I'm sure that there was mm-hmm. and I'm a sure lot of death. In a smaller workers area like this, they wouldn't have the medical professionals there wouldn't necessarily have access to the sources mm-hmm. on the most recent stuff. For sure. On December 23rd of 1881, Martha and Sterling were going across the river to Ireton, Ohio for the night to visit a family member. 15-year-old Emma Carrico, better known as Emma Thomas, um, by her stepfather's last name, lived across the street from the Gibbons, and she was going to go stay with Fanny and Robbie for the night to keep them company while Martha was gone. And also, I'm sure if something were to have happened, I don't know how good... Robbie would have been at being able to help in the situation. So it was probably comforting to have somebody else in the house. So Emma was actually very excited to spend the night as she and Fanny were very close friends. So Robert, Emma, and Fanny seemed to be having a good time as the neighbors heard them laughing and, and just having a good old time. And just playing around and mm-hmm, being whatnot. kids. So on December 24th, Christmas Eve, um, Miss Thomas, Emma's mom, woke around 4 a.m. to start her chores. And she looked out to check the Gibbons house and everything, you know, seemed to be fine. So she just went back to, you know, doing housework and whatnot. And about two hours later, around 6 a.m., she checked on the house again, but this time, she saw a light flickering in the house and that concerned her so she went over there to you know see what was going on what was happening and she saw that it was a fire so at this point miss thomas um started shouting to alert the neighbors that there was a fire going on and the fire department you know was alerted back then they didn't have phones so it was just kind of like a a neighbor thing i'm sure they probably heard it yeah yeah pe- yeah they probably heard that and people were you know whoever was closest to the fire department probably started running in that direction when the fire department heard of the fire they sounded the alarm and sent the bucket brigade out pretty much consisted of the neighbors yeah <laughs> yeah and back then they had instead of having the normal fire department like we have they had a bucket brigade because there wasn't you know trucks that's just how they did it back then so they got their you know buckets so neighbors who were also awoken by the commotion that was going on outside came out and you know started helping and since they you know the neighbors knew that children lived in that house and they knew that the children were there so they actually broke the windows to search for the children in the house unfortunately the children were already deceased and the bodies of the three children robbie emma and fanny were pulled from the burning house and laid on a mattress not sure where the mattress came from but they laid them on a mattress maybe somebody brought one from their 
house thinking if if they were alive they if would... they're injured to put them right. on there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was originally assumed that the children had died from smoke inhalation however the morning sun revealed that the children's bodies were mutilated and that their skulls were crushed indicating foul play the medical examiner concluded that the two girls were sexually assaulted before they were murdered and it was determined that the fire was most likely set to cover up the crime scene and unfortunately the fire destroyed most of the evidence and no one heard or saw anything suspicious which during the middle of the night it's probably common everybody was probably sleeping so the police were able to recover bloody sheets the pillows as well as an axe and a crowbar that was covered with blood and hair and they also kept the clothing that the children had been wearing as evidence police believe that the perpetrator or perpetrators lived in the area as ashland was a small close-knit town the unsolved murders left the locals feeling very uneasy which of course you're gonna you know you don't know if this is like a one-time thing or mm-hmm. if this is something that they're gonna you know continuously do so you don't know i'm right. sure they were all on high alert mm-hmm. like i would imagine some people some of the townsmen maybe like were out and about mm-hmm. kind of keeping an eye during the middle of the night after that i would imagine yeah i'm sure they would mm-hmm. I mean, back then, the police and fire and all that wasn't anything like what we have now. So yeah, they so it was a had, lot of the towns doing kind of their own Yeah, thing like a community the thing. Part. They mm-hmm. looked out for their, their town. They The elders looked out for their community. On December 26th, a service was held for the three teenagers at the Methodist Episcopal Church. So many people actually attended the service that the large crowd actually had to gather outside of the church because there wasn't any more room inside. And the children were then buried in the Ashland Cemetery. I'm sure the service was full of people because... Yeah, I mean, I'm sure the whole town, yeah. you know, this was a tragedy that not only affected that family, but them. And it's it was a close-knit town as oh. well, so I'm sure... You know, at least representatives from everybody's family Mm -hmm. came. Mm. The same day, the mayor of Ashland, John Means, actually called a town meeting where he asked for donations for a monetary reward as well as money to hire a detective to hunt down the murderer or murderers. And within a few days, the town was actually able to gather over $1,200, which today would be around 32,000 and private detectives from surrounding states actually flocked into the area in hopes of being selected to assist in the case. One detective by the name of J.B. Norris was from Ohio and he believed that John Gibbons, which was the children's estranged father, was the murderer. John's whereabouts were unaccounted for at the time of the murders. And Martha also claimed that John had threatened to cut the family's heads off and to burn the house down several times before. She also told authorities that he also said that he was going to drown himself after killing the family, causing authorities to drag the nearby pond. However, no body was actually found. And newspapers ran with the story that John was guilty and the streets were lined with wanted posters of John 
while another detective by the name of Marshall Heflin from Maysville, Kentucky, disagreed with the Detective Norris. And Detective Heflin pointed out that the crime was likely committed by more than one person, as it would be too difficult for one person to control three teens. Now, although one was disabled and, and had a hard time moving around, they still there's still two physically able teens that and I'm they sure, would have had to fight off. I'm sure Robbie had at least some type of, you know, he'd been living with this for 10 years at this point. Right. I'm sure he, you know, was used to it to the point mm -hmm. where he could fight back, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, he mm -hmm. can, I'm sure, get around pretty good and, yeah. you know, figure it out. What he, and, and when you get that adrenaline going. Yeah, you it know. doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Right. You're capable of doing almost anything. Mm -hmm. Realizing that he would have to prove that John was innocent before he could look for the real killer or killers, he began searching for John. On December 31st, um, Detective Heflin located John in West Virginia, where he had been residing at the time. And during his time in West Virginia, he was actually boarding with a man by the name of Andrew Hager. And Andrew testified that John had actually been staying with him since December 16th and that he had actually seen him every day um, at the house at some point. Um, so he'd seen him every day since the 16th of December. And Andrew's home was too far from Ashland to have traveled there and back in less than a day so he pr was able to prove that john you know had nothing to do with the murders because he didn't have the opportunity mm -hmm. to be seen at home go commit the murders and then be back and be seen at home yeah, again within 24 hours mm -hmm. the time framing just didn't match up mm -hmm. yes because he would have had to take the you know, train there and mm -hmm. it would have taken back then much longer mm -hmm. and i'm sure there's only arrival times and departure times i mean like they do have, have them now but they probably were less of that yes yeah there was a less Maybe population a day, a in general mm -hmm. yeah you never know a local bricklayer by the name of george ellis walked into ashland's general store to purchase a cigar while checking george out one of the owners made a remark on john's innocent and wondering out loud who committed the murder George seemed startled and began to act nervous. George then bursted out about possibly knowing who committed the crime. After this encounter, George became paranoid and decided to speak with Detective Heflin. George told the detective that he lived near the Gibbons and that he may have information. And then he also asked about the meaning of state's evidence. Now, Detective Heflin explained that a guilty party who helped provide information on other involved parties had the possibility of getting a lesser sentence. Now, that still is the case nowadays as well. During his interview, George said that he met up with a co-worker by the name of Ellis Kraft a few days prior to the 24th. And Ellis actually told George that on Christmas Eve, he was going to see Fanny and give her some candy and have sex with her and invited George to come along. Fanny um, was not aware of this situation at all. It's just odd that he would have invited him to come along. Too. Yeah, that, that seems weird, too. Yeah. If you're going to go see, like, 
someone romantically. You're not going to bring somebody. Yes, but he was not seeing her romantically. Mm-mm. He wanted to get with her. Mm-hmm. So George said that around midnight on the 24th, Ellis and another co-worker of theirs by the name of William Neal came to his house and woke him up to have, as they called it, fun at the Gibbons' house. And he said that upon their arrival, Ellis used an old axe that they, I guess, supposedly found under the porch along with a crowbar that they took as well. And so they used the axe to raise the window before entering And according to George, Ellis entered first, followed by William. And George claimed that he waited out on the porch for some time before deciding to go in. Robbie was apparently awoken by the noise, causing Ellis to threaten him into lying still before heading to where the girls were sleeping. Realizing that the girls were in trouble, Robbie tried to stop the men and Ellis hit him with an axe causing him to fall six feet from the loft where his body was found so he was where he was located was in a loft area so so when he you know was hit he i'm guessing there wasn't like a railing over the loft or a smaller railing or yeah small enough that he could fall over Mm -hmm. so he got hit hard enough Mm -hmm. flipping over it this is true Mm -hmm. The men then proceeded to rape the girls as they fought back before striking them over the head and killing them as well. After the three teens were dead, George poured coal oil over their bodies and set them on fire before the three attackers left the house. Now, George claimed that he had no choice as Alice and William would have killed him. Now, during the trial, he claimed that they threatened him with a revolver. He also stated that Alice and William had been talking about having sex with Emma and Fanny before Christmas, despite both of them being married with children. Shame on them. I'm pretty sure he just worded it. They worded it as having sex to make it sound better for them. Mm -hmm. It was rape either way. Yes. George would go on to changing his confession multiple times, changing it to fit the most current information. So he was not one to, you know, take his word. Yes, he was just trying to get the least amount of mm-hmm. prison time. As and I wonder if he was doing it on purpose. Was this part yes. of his plan? Ellis and William were brought in for questioning, and the three men were transported to the county jail in Cattlesburg, where the courthouse was actually located. And as police were concerned about vigilantes, Um, Because that was a common thing back then Mm -hmm. where, you know, towns would prefer to take justice into their own hands rather than let the law take care of it. So they actually decided to move the men by boat for their protection. However, a mob of vigilantes did end up showing up when the boat with the prisoners was leaving and the mob boarded a steamboat in order to pursue the prisoners you know when the boat that supposedly had the prisoners arrived on shore the mob realized that the prisoners had you know weren't on that boat and it they had actually been moved to another boat which landed safely in lexington 
So when they did switch the prisoners over from one boat to another, they allowed a few reporters to enter the boat to question the prisoners, which I found very this is strange. Oh, so bizarre. I mean, it's like an it's like a movie. It's like this as this story mm-hmm. is going on, I could just mm-hmm. play this out in my head that it's it just seems like an old western movie taking place and mm-hmm. oh yeah very strange yes and once the reporters were on the boat um, ellis and they noticed ellis and william were shackled together and they spoke to the reporters eagerly and they were kind of joking and singing with the guards they you know just they Bizarre both were behavior. yeah they were just acting like it it wasn't anything and both men did claim their innocence um when speaking with the reporters of course they did and george on the other hand he was shackled away from the other men and he declined to speak to the reporters he just kind of stayed off on his own once they arrived at the jail in lexington george claimed that detective heflin forced him to confess at gunpoint in his initial interview once again yeah so he just kind of come change it's just he, add cha- stuff in he, there, he would it change up. his story and then he would you know say it was true and then he would be like oh no it wasn't true i was forced to do it but then he would give another confession but then he would later say oh i was forced into that too yeah so he kept on changing his mind of whether he wanted to confess or whether he wanted mm-hmm. to claim he was forced into the confession it just seems so odd behavior. On January 16th, Ellis and William were brought back to Cattlesburg for their trial. Now, William was the first of the three men to have the trial, and he was charged with Emma's murder. During the trial, a neighbor who was up with a sick child testified that she had heard fighting. However, she was not certain of the time as they did not own a clock. It was also been reported that other neighbors had seen the three men in the area on the night of the fire with some neighbors seeing them together and others seeing them separately. So I thought that neighbors all said, oh, no, we didn't see anything. Yeah. Now afterwards, suddenly. Yeah, but you know how sometimes yeah, I guess when it takes things time come to... up, you, you start to remember things or you, the memory is kind of skewed by the time frame. You're yeah, just kind of like, it could have. Remember yeah. this, but what uh-huh. day was that on? Mm-hmm. You know, they could have been like, oh, I think it was that day. I'm going to go yeah. with that. Mm-hmm. So as much as. Which is why witness testimony isn't always. Credible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it, the human brain, especially, you know, if a tragedy happens, doesn't always mm-hmm. remember exactly. Memory isn't the best. Right. Time frame, and, time frame and, and, mm-hmm. and details are not always remembered exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. As they happened. As there was not much physical evidence due to the fire, the case lingered on George's witness testimony. Now, George's detail on the crime during the trial, adding that he had met up with Ellis and William shortly after the crime. He stated that they once again threatened his life if he told anyone what they did. Now, the defense brought in George's wife, who testified that she had woke up twice, once at midnight and once at 4.30 a.m. Now, that was the night of the murders. And she also stated that George was there both times and that she did not believe that her husband had left the house at all. 
during George's time in jail, his wife was heard pleading with him to tell the quote-unquote real truth. A man named Oliver Hampton testified that George said that William and Ellis were innocent and several character witnesses also testified that William was a good man. How could they say that if he's married with children and going to have <laughs> well, sex the, with another woman? Well, they're trying to prove that. So the character would be, you know, up to that point, mm -hmm. how he was. Yeah. On February 6th of 1882, after 10 days of trial, the jury only de deliberated for 17 minutes before giving a guilty verdict. That's quick. Mm-hmm. And William was sentenced to be hung on February 13th. Ellis's trial followed immediately after William's. The jury heard the same testimony from the same witnesses and saw the same evidence as in William's trial. This time, the jury deliberated for 20 minutes before once again reaching a guilty verdict. Ellis was scheduled to be hung the same day as William. Now, both Ellis and William claimed their innocence and requested an appeal. The convictions were reversed on the grounds of technicalities. Their cases were actually set for retrial. On May 22nd, several prisoners, including Alice and William, actually attempted to escape from the jail. However, their attempt was unsuccessful. George's trial was last, starting at the end of May of 1882. Now, George was charged with the murder of Robbie. George claims that his confession was coerced and his wife supported him throughout his trial, believing in his innocence. The testimony and evidence was pretty much the same as Ellis and William's trial, and the jury deliberated for what was reported as 22 hours at this time, which seemed like a long time compared to the other two. Um, but they did come to the conclusion of a guilty verdict once again. And unlike the others, though, George was actually sentenced to life in prison. Around midnight on the night of George's conviction, a group of around 20 men wearing black hoods over their faces took over the engine house at the Chatterai Railroad in Ashland. They hitched two flat cars which they rode to the jail and the men arrived there around 3 a.m. At this point they were denied admittance into the jail and decided to force their way in. They think they were just gonna let them in? Well they figure let's try it and then if not right, we'll they, get in anyway. So come in a group of 20 they were probably going to be more likely let in because they probably didn't want to have to deal with them maybe. Yeah maybe they thought they could like threaten them yeah mm -hmm. the men found george and took him back to ashland by the little by the train which was just kind of like the two black cars that they had hitched together pretty much and they questioned him about his involvement in the death of the three teens witnesses that were there say that he appeared to be calm and once again confessed to the crime stating that all three of the men were guilty he also refused an opportunity to pray and requested that his body not be mutilated after death, which you didn't care so much about, you know, what you did to these three teenagers' bodies. Right, but you're going to be worried about your own. Yeah. After you're dead. You're yeah. not even going to know. 
yeah, he was perfectly fine with pouring oil on the bodies and lighting them on fire. Yeah, he doesn't want anything to happen to his. It's just ironic. On June 3rd of 1882, George was lynched and his body was left to be cut down by the coroner the next day. George's death was determined to have come at the hand of a person or persons unknown. So I'm guessing the coroner kind of just knowing the townspeople probably covered for Yeah, and a mob of 20, you probably can't really... Yeah, and you can't say exactly who who was the one that Mm -hmm. did it. I mean, it was... It's so it'd be so hard to prove who yeah. out of the twenty was mm-hmm. the actual one, and they probably you know the only people who probably knew were you know the twenty people and then maybe a few other people like the people who knew weren't going to give up the people who yeah. were there mm-hmm. because they agree with it. Mm-hmm. While waiting for their new trial, Ellis and William gave interviews claiming that they were innocent and that George was just crazy. As tensions were high between the townspeople and the justice system, a hundred members of the state militia were sent to guard the two remaining men. So now, they had to bring in even more people. Reinforcements, reinforcements to <laughs> Because the town couldn't them. behave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just wanted to do uh, it their own way rather than like Well, I mean, back know, then, though, back, back then, that was common, too. So... Mm-hmm. They were just going with common practice. I mean, it's yeah, and the justice system. Yeah, it was a lot different than mm-hmm. it is today. Mm-hmm. Ellis and William both requested a change of venue, which I don't blame them, um, as the townspeople were out for them. The request was granted, and the men were to be transported to another town in order to give the men a fair trial. And the men were actually transported via boat. Again. <laughs> again. As it seemed to be the safest way to be transporting them. So, once again, it was the mob. A mob of around 200 people at this time, or men and boys, demanded that the militia handed the men over to them. The boat that was carrying the prisoners was able to depart. However, the townspeople were able to um, beat them to the destination, um, which I believe they were going to Ashland. Yeah. From where the courthouse was. Um, And as the boat was coming to shore, someone from the mob actually shot a gun at the militia, which caused the militia to kind of barricade themselves. So they used mm-hmm. you know, items that were on the boat to kind of create a barrier between them and the 200. Well, actually, it's more, I think, at this point, once they arrived there, I think more people mm-hmm. came out, like the women and children even came for this part. And twenty around 20 of the men and boys from the mob actually hijacked a ferry boat to get to the prisoner's boat, where they continued to demand that the men be handed over. This is just a scene out of a movie once again. It's like every time you think that it's going to be, that this is the last incident, it's like more things keep happening. Yeah. Obviously, they weren't going to hand over the prisoners because it was their job to you know, keep them. Protect them and, and guard them mm-hmm. for their fair trial. Mm-hmm. And this actually resulted in an explosion of gunfire with hundreds of shots being fired by the militia into the crowds of people on shore. Because um, they felt that, you know, their lives were... Well, they're being threatened. They're being danger. shot at. Yeah, they're being... Yeah, so it was kind of like a little firefight going on here. 
and the incident actually ended up resulting in four deaths and several people being injured including some people who were severely wounded the those that died were colonel lw rupert who had tried to actually stop the mob from boarding the ferry um, there was also a young father named George Keener who was killed, as well as 25-year-old Alexander Harris and 14-year-old Willie Third. Actually, one of the relatives of the Gibbons children was actually shot three times during the incident. However, he did survive his wounds. And an inquest into the shooting later ruled that it was a justified shooting as the militia Felt that they were in danger yeah, they were when they threatened. released fire. All right, they were threatened with gunfire. I mm -hmm. mean, in February of 1883, Ellis was the first to be retried. During the trial, the militia had to camp in town because, once again, the townspeople couldn't behave themselves. As it was unseasonably cold during the trial, the militia guards had to deal with bad conditions due to the ice, sleet, snow, and mud. One guard died from exposure, and many others were hospitalized due to the weather conditions. On February 24th, after having had a day's delay due to a sick juror, the jury was able to return a guilty verdict. After his conviction, Ellis declared his innocence in the courtroom. Ellis's execution was originally scheduled for May 4th. However, the governor didn't want the execution to be you know on his hands he didn't want it to happen during his term so he delayed the execution for the next governor to deal with yeah. and the new governor scheduled the execution for october 12th uh, supporters of ellis claimed to have evidence that would exonerate him and requested that his hanging be postponed however that request was denied so on October 12th of 1883, Ellis was actually baptized in the small town of Grayson, which actually normally had only around a thousand people, tripled in size for the viewing for Ellis's execution. Uh, before he was hung, he declared himself innocent one last time. William was the last to be retried. Like Ellis, William was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. William was able to delay his execution by filing numerous appeals. The evidence Ellis's supporters were supposed to present to help William get, go free never materialized, which did not surprise me one bit. And on March 3rd of 1885, with no more appeals left, William was prepared for his hanging. However, the execution was postponed at the last minute again. And on March 28th of 1885, after many postponements, William was actually executed in front of nearly 3,000 witnesses. Prior to his execution, William proclaimed his innocence for one last time. Over the years, there have been songs and poems written about this tragedy. One of the best-known songs is called The Ashland Tragedy, which was composed by a man named Eli Adams. And he actually printed the ballad and handed it out on the day of the executions. Um, so both William and Alice's executions, he mm -hmm. handed that out. 
And I know over the years there has been so many theories on what really happened. Um, so when we'll we'll never really know what the true story is. If they're all innocent, if they're all guilty, mm-hmm. you know, we'll never know. But and in the eighteen eighties it's not like they had oh like the ability to look at DNA or anything like that. So they just kind of had to rely on the very little bit of evidence that they could and with everything being destroyed during the fire there really Mm -hmm. wasn't much to go on Mm -hmm. at all um just basically the confession of george i think that that's where it all started from was his confession yeah i think so without his confession i don't know that they would have been able to they would have been able to to try them Mm We just want to wish everybody happy holidays on whichever holiday they do decide to celebrate. Mm -hmm. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you for listening to Crime Night. You can find our sources on our website list in the podcast description. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube under Crime Night Podcast. Please join us every other Wednesday at 6 p.m. Central. Good Good night. night.